back to another episode of Public Problems. Um, today, once again, I'm with a number of Bush School students, and they're going to share some of their findings with you from a report that they did for the first half of their semester and their first semester of grad school. Um, so before we get to the actual report, I want to let this uh, give the students a moment to introduce themselves, we'll introduce the report, and then uh, move on from there. Hi, I'm Matthew Bodhauer. Tony Ramos. My name is Faith Dingus. Joe Byram. And Laura McGrath. All right. So um, first, let me say thanks so much for your work. Um, your report looks great, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it today. Um, so as part of this assignment, um, you could choose any report uh, topic that you wanted, any kind of policy issue, any public problem, as I term them. Um, what drew you particularly to, the, to your topic, which... The title of your report is Overpopulation in U.S. Prisons. So what? Uh, how did the group come to this as their topic, as your topic? Some of us in the group have uh, family members who work in the corrections field. Mm -hmm. um, we all kind of agree that this was going to be a large issue that affects um, many hundreds of thousands or millions of Americans. Um, it takes a large economic toll for taxpayers. There's a moral cost. Um, I think Faith has family who is... My dad is actually a psychotherapist at one of the uh, state prisons. So I slept foot in a prison before the age of 10 years old. So mm -hmm. it was a really interesting experience. But, yeah. So, yeah, so mainly this was a big issue that we all kind of agree needed to be addressed and, and talked about. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that it, um, it's a topic that you did take up. I think criminal justice, the criminal justice system in general, is something we end up talking about across a number of these episodes um, and conversations. Um, and so I think it's a really important one. And I like the way you've laid out and kind of structured some of your arguments. So I'm really excited to get into the specifics of that. Um, and people who've listened to some of these other conversations might have gotten some of the history on overpopulation before, but I'd like to hear your take on it. So this is something that is becoming, I think, a little bit more common knowledge today about just the amount of people in U.S. prisons. But I don't know that people really understand why or how that's changed over time. And so I know as part of your report, you give a little bit of a background information on the history of this. So um, share with us a little bit about how, this, uh, how long has this been a problem, how has it changed over time, and just some background information. Yeah, absolutely. So that would be my portion of this report. Um, mm -hmm. Really, before the 1970s, prisoner population was remained relatively um, steady at steady rates compared to the, the levels of population. There were some spikes, for example, during the Great Depression when there were fewer jobs, and there, so crime rates went up. But relatively, relatively it remained um, the same until the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, this is when Richard Nixon was in office, and he declared a war on drugs. Um, and it really took off during the 1980s. And so the war on drugs included um, funding law enforcement agencies to crack down on drug users and drug sellers, and then uh, things like mandatory minimum for um, for offenders. Mm -hmm. So some of the... Um, those mandatory minimums are like those kind of three strikes and you're out. Right. Ones, right, where after a certain a number of violations, there's like a mandatory amount you have to serve. Right, mm -hmm. right, absolutely. Um, so, for example, I can give you kind of a number. Um, when Ronald Reagan took office in 1980, 
the total prison population was about 329,000. Um, and when he left, just eight years later, the prisoner population had essentially doubled to over 600,000 oh, wow. people. So this is a problem that really started in the 70s, took off in the 80s, and has increased since then, for the most part. And as a general, and it's okay if you don't recall right off the top of your head, but as a general reference point, where is it today? I mean, how many people are in prison today as a comparison to the 600,000-ish number from the 80s? So I have another stat for you. Great. <laughs> Statistics. <laughs> yeah. Uh, puts it in context. So since the beginning of the war, the official war on drugs uh, began in 1982. Okay. So Richard Nixon talked about it, maybe uh, pushed for some tough measures, but it really officially began in 1982. The number of people incarcerated for drug offenses was 40,000. 40,900 in 1980, and then in 2016, it was uh, 450,000. So that's over 100%. Yeah. I mean, more than like 400% yeah. increase or more. Almost 1,000. So, yeah. yeah, 1,000. Yeah, thanks, mm -hmm. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's really blown up in the last just 40, 50 years. And is the biggest increase, I mean, you mentioned the war on drugs. Has that kind of continued even since the 80s? I mean, are most, uh, is a lot of, What's going on still uh, all the way up to today is a lot of the prison population still drug offenders. I mean, is that still part of it? A large percentage of it, yes. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's some states that have pushed for um, some reforms that are hopefully um, going to lessen the number of the prisoner, or lessen the prison population, but it's really not where it should be. We'll talk about that later in the report. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, a vast majority of people in prison, a lot, of, a huge percentage of people in prison are for, for drug-related offenses. And since the 1970s and 80s, um, has there been any, or did you look into as a group, has the rate of crime increased? I mean, is there any evidence that, like, as we were putting more people in prison that you know, crime rates were any higher than they had been in the past? Or was this really kind of a deliberate attempt to, um, to kind of change the status quo and um, you know, particularly enforce uh, drug rules harsher? Was there, were there other things going on during this time period? Sure. So we didn't, I didn't find, um, and my group members can jump in, um, I didn't find any information on if crime rates had risen. It's, I did read a quote from Richard Nixon's, I think, campaign manager or chief of staff, who essentially said that the war on drugs um, began as a way to disrupt hippie and black communities mm -hmm. and to imprison people um, in those communities and, and really just disrupt. So it seems deliberate, um, a deliberate attack on, on those communities. Yeah, it's another piece of this that we haven't mentioned yet, but that I assume would come a little later, particularly when we start talking about some of the moral costs. Uh, but this enforcement of the war on drugs uh, wasn't sort of evenly done throughout the country, right? I mean, this, to, to your point, it started under Nixon and, um, you know, with the, I think, recordings we have now and, and what some of the policymakers at the time uh, said they were thinking and the policies they were pursuing. I mean, this was a deliberate attempt, as you say, to kind of disrupt um, hippie communities and minority communities, yeah, right? I, people of color. I actually have a full quote, if y'all want to. Yeah, let's hear it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was by, so it's a high-ranking member of the Nixon administration, a guy named John Elrichman. Uh -huh. He said, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. 
but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and, criminalizing, and then criminalizing both heavily, we disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we didn't. Yeah. So some of the stuff I've seen, on, which is just, it's just wild when you hear the actual quote how deliberate it was, <clears throat> and then just kind of picked up and ran with by most administrations since. There hasn't been really huge attempts to, I mean, there was some under the Obama administration, but this has really been something that's kind of continued throughout, even uh, even under a Democratic president, right? And it wasn't just uh, Republican presidents. Um, okay, so... Basically, the story of overpopulation, and correct me if I'm uh, in an overgeneralized term, is that in the late 70s, Nixon starts with this strategy of kind of disrupting his uh, black and hippie communities uh, and starting and kind of ramping up enforcement of uh, drug crime. And then this is picked up and ran with under the Reagan administration, where it really kind of officially begins, as you mentioned. And correspondingly, we have a lot of people put in jail um, or in prison as a response. And those, those enforcements were often in communities of color, in particular, over time, um, I suppose once the hippies were dealt with. <laughs> and... Um, and then that sticks with all the way up to today, right? There's real disparities in the in, in people from different types of backgrounds being in prison. I mean, is that is that still what you find in your research as yeah, well? Absolutely. And I think one of the one thing that I wanted to mention about the racial disparities between how it was going really going after the black community was that there were separate penalties for crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Mm-hmm. So that's I mean, they're saying the same thing, but uh, crack cocaine held a, a stricter penalty. Then powder cocaine, powder cocaine being predominantly used by whites, crack cocaine being predominantly used by blacks. So I think if there's uh, a strong piece of evidence to suggest that it was uh, racially biased in a racist policy, that would be uh, a one good one example. One good one example, yeah. And just real quick on that. Um, so in 1986, the Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, this drink, Reagan's administration, and establishment the mandatory minimum pre- the mandatory minimum prison sentences for certain drug offenses, and also establish the ratio for basically um, just the amount of time you have for powder cocaine, which uh, whites generally use, and crack cocaine, which blacks generally use. And then during the Obama administration, they passed Congress passed the Fair Sentencing Act, which reduced the disparity discrepancy between crack and powder cocaine offenses from 101. It's 18 to 1. Okay. So, so there's really some, some pushback um, in, the, in the Obama administration on rectifying some of these like just ridiculous uh, extreme <laughs> differences across these drugs. Um, okay, before we move into the costs, uh, you use uh, the word particularly or specifically overpopulation. So we've talked a little bit about why we put a lot of people in prison is there some? Is there anything else that you mean by overpopulation? I mean, are the prisons themselves at capacity? Are there? Uh, do we know anything about? You know, is it the is it the case that not only are there a lot of people in prison, we use use the term overpopulation. So I guess I'm curious: is that more of a kind of a from a societal standpoint, or is that from like actually our prisons have too many people in them? Yeah, so like so both, I would say. 
Um, a widely touted statistic is that the United States has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's uh, prisoner population. Mm-hmm. So I think most rational people would say that we have too many prisoners. Um, and also, uh, to your other question, yes, there is overcrowding in prisons, which we'll talk about um, with the cost, but we're having to build more and more prisons to accompany or to, to yeah, to, just to house these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another group talked uh, a little bit about that particular piece of it with private prisons mm-hmm. and some of the the weird incentives um, that that industry has for private prisons to be profitable, the ways in which they have captive customers in the form of prisoners, um, and then some of the ways in which the contracts are structured with the states to like maintain maintain certain levels of capacity, and so um, that that dynamic on the overpopulation seems to or at least overcrowding in part has led, I think, uh, to these private prisons, which were I mean, just, I think, pretty clearly a terrible idea. Right. Um, but, um, okay, so let's move into some of the, the cost or some of the challenges associated with the U.S. prison system and U.S. prisons. Um, in your report, you lay out um, across a couple of chapters um, different types of costs that you found to be important. And I like how you lay this out by economic costs, social and moral costs. And so tell me a little bit about, um, maybe let's start with the economic costs. That's the one you start with in your report. So what are the economic costs of U.S. prisons? So I have a lot of numbers not to be going off of, but um, annually um, the United States pays $180 billion a year, and that's including prisons but also the court costs, um, attorneys, the cost of the families because the family members in prison, but of that $180 billion, um, approximately $80 billion is spent just on prisons, parole, and probation. And also, like Joe was mentioning earlier, the cost really increased since the 1980s. Um, in 1982, the total cost was about $20 billion a year. Um, and in 2008, it rose to about $70 billion. And obviously, 10 years later, it's almost $80 billion. And um, during the same time, too, uh, a figure that people overlook is um, older prison population um, from about 1999 to 2016, it increased 280%. And uh, the states and federal government spent about $8.1 billion a year on that. Mm-hmm. So obviously, as we keep aging, we're also going to be paying more in terms of the healthcare costs. I think that's something people always overlook, is not only do you have to pay to have them in prison, but you have to pay the food and their medical expenses. Um, and another interesting cost, this happened recently, there's a lawsuit. Um, some prisoners filed in Texas about lack of air conditioning in the prison. And um, they determined that they won their case, but it cost about $4 million to retrofit their prison. And uh, with over 100 state prisons in Texas, with about 75% of them lacking air conditioning, um, it would cost almost $300 million to retrofit all of them. And like you said, we, um, in terms of building new prisons, um, it costs, um, I think they said it would cost $8 million to build a 100-bed prison. Um, and for the 30-year operating costs, that'd be over $30 million. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another state that said just to reduce costs. If we just reduce the prisoner population by a half percent, that we would save um, $16.9 billion a year just by reducing that, that little amount. And so, um, like you were saying, that's what we're kind of looking at the costs, is that we're spending so much money every single year. And historically, like, Joe kind of mentioned, the U.S. has had this mentality of tough on crime. Mm-hmm. We need to be tough on crime. We need to throw people in prison. We need to throw people in prison. But 
at some point you had to ask yourself, is it worth continuing to build all these prisons to accommodate them based on the costs? And um, another interesting statistic is that um, the U.S., or Texas specifically, of course, it applies to, I think, almost all states, is that we spend more um, per prisoner than we do in education for students. Like in Texas, we spend $20,000 a year per prisoner, but we only spend $10,000 a year um, for students. And there was a study, um, I think, yeah, um, in prisons, the, um, I think 30% of the general po of the population of prisons have less than a high school degree, where in the general population it's 14% um, or less. And so um, looking at that cost, you can see that there it seems to be a correlation between like how much education you achieve and your chances of going to prison. And if we focus the money you know, more on education than on prisons, there's a chance we could help um, alleviate the cost that we're paying. Um, and also an interesting thing, I think from about the period of 1980 to 2012, um, in total, the cost of education increased from 258 um, billion to 564 billion, so about doubled. But the cost of prisons, although it was lower, it went from 17 to 71 billion, a quadruple. So in the same time period, we actually spent more on increasing prisons than we did on, um, on education. education. And I think another thing you mentioned earlier about private prisons, we kind of looked at that a little bit, is that Although private prisons claim that, oh, we can be cheaper than a public prison, they have to cut costs to do that. One thing I saw was that I think um, 65 to 70% of their costs is associated with paying the guards who work at the prison, and that the ones that work at private prisons earn about 7,000 less than the public prisons. They can't have unions, and so their conditions are a lot worse, and uh, private prisons can determine who they're actually going to take in as prisoners and who they're not going to take in. So they're going to go for more non-violent offenders, people who are easier to manage, and so they can boost their statistics better. It's like, oh, it's so safe, and we can manage it so well because they can choose what prisons they want and reject prisoners that they don't want and keep them in the uh, mm -hmm. public prisons. Yeah, the, uh, the other group that I spoke with mentioned that part as well. They get to kind of have their choice of prisoners um, and that they, where they really save the money is on cutting the pay of the guards, um, which of course has, you know, consequences for quality. Surprise, surprise, right? Um, so yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, the total amount of over a hundred billion is just, um, it's just a large, large amount. I'd have to look back. Um, but I believe that is a similar amount that is spent, um, in Medicare, um, in a year, but I'd have to double. I'd have to look at that again. But it's a. I'm mean, talking about like real, real large amounts of money uh, the, that are similar in cost to other major U.S. federal programs. Um, and um, yeah, the degree to which it's grown so quickly um, and outpacing what we spend on education um, seems just all by itself to suggest that there's something wrong with how we're approaching this, particularly when there's not any good evidence that I'm aware of that throughout the country that crime is increasing. And so, you know, this really um, should pose a question to us, I think, is if crime isn't increasing, 
but we are putting more and more and more people in prison, what is the societal benefit of that, particularly the societal benefit given the opportunity costs of the actual dollars spent on it? I mean, to your point, this money could be spent in lots of different directions that we know helps alleviate some of the things that are related to why people end up in prison. Right. And so, for example, just education <laughs> um, is one real clear place where, where money could go um, to help alleviate this problem rather than keeping people in prison for some mandatory sentence or for some nonviolent drug offense. That money could literally be spent if we chose to as a society on education, which helps alleviate the actual factors for why people do commit violent crime or petty crime. They're related to the to the same thing that you mentioned. It's related to education and and uh, in some really particular ways. So, um, okay, well, some of those things are really frustrating, particularly when when I spoke with another group, and I think it was something like forty eight out of 50 states were decreasing the amount they had been spending on education over some you know, recent time period. Um, anyways, okay. So bringing it back together. Um, okay, so that highlights some of the just actual dollar amount spent and sort of highlights that those dollars could be spent probably more productively for society in, a, in different ways. Um, you also highlight that there are some social and and moral costs. And I would add to the economic cost, and this maybe this is a nice bridge to the social and moral costs, that um, this really uh, being in prison really hurts people's um, chances in the labor market. And so not only does it have the direct spending economic cost of um, spending more on prisons, but it has the indirect effect of, of other social costs. So these people are more likely to go back to prison because it's hard for them to get jobs um, as, as just like a, as a specific one, but then they're often uh, because they can't enter the workforce, maybe are more likely to be reliant on other social welfare programs. Um, and so this has all kinds of like indirect costs as well, um, which stems over to some of the social and moral costs, I think. So which ones, what particular social and moral costs did you highlight uh, in your report? So what we focused on mainly was the racial disparities mm -hmm. within the prison population. Um, we wanted to focus more on the economic cost, but we knew that we wouldn't be able to talk about a prison population at all without discussing the social and moral costs. One thing that I found was that a black male has a one in three chance to go to prison in his lifetime. A Hispanic male has a one in six chance and a white male has a 1 in 17 chance of going to prison in their lifetime. Um, it's different. Yes, very yeah, different. different. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it definitely jumps when you look at the white male and his chances of going. Um, but we see that the implications are high specifically for African Americans. Um, and as you had stated earlier, you know, when they serve their time, the punishment doesn't end there. And then um, the consequences aren't just limited to that individual um, that served their time or that was incarcerated. Um, one particular thing I found in my research that I thought was interesting but also extremely disturbing um, is that some people are comparing the incarceration of African Americans in our society to the Jim Crow era and black codes in the sense that they both kind of serve the same purpose. Um, 
the consequence of the criminal record is that it results in the exclusion of a large portion of communities of color from achieving the American dream, right? Um, once they go through the U.S. criminal justice system with its discriminatory effects, um, it places barriers in a similar way that excludes them from allowing them to participate in civic life. Basically, the stigma of criminal conviction and time spent in prison reduces employment opportunities, weakens social connections, reduces the wages that you could potentially earn, um, and limits their access to credit markets overall so that they're not even able to obtain credit in that sense either. Um, basically, there's an entire population within the U.S. that's restrained in how they can participate in the workforce. Um, and then I also touched on how incarceration also has social implications for the family as well. Um, it can lead to divorce, increased prob probability for single parenthood, um, the stress of an incarcerated parent um, can exacerbate, exacerbate marital instability. It's been shown to have negative outcomes for children. For example, it's led to depression, delinquency, aggression, criminal behavior, and social exclusion that can persist into adulthood, um, which kind of shows the effects that incarceration can have on other people that aren't just limited to you. Yeah, so, I mean, that's sort of some of the, I mean, maybe indirect isn't the right word, but maybe spillover effects mm -hmm. um, of, you know, of a, of a parent being incarcerated, not just on the effect of the other spouse and the type of life they have to live, but also as a consequence, the type of parent they can be, and then the types of kind of uh, psychological harm, not, not, and of course, economic harm as mm -hmm. one family member is no longer earning income, right? You can imagine the impact that has not just on on the spouse and the person incarcerated, but years, years later, I mean, as we know from studying children, like those traumas stay with them, right? And so it goes on to affect a whole nother generation. Every, every person incarcerated doesn't just affect them. It affects their whole family and their network and then, you know, but in particular their children, right? right. I think um, some of the social and moral cost, I mean, to your point, um, it's often referred to among people who do policy research in this area as the new Jim Crow in the sense that it has some features that distinguish it from the old one, but serves um, similar purposes to disenfranchise and relegate to second class um, former prisoners. Um, and because of the enforcement, uh, particularly related to the war on drugs, He's had very serious racial disparities. And so when looked through that way, it becomes to be a pretty scary picture, I think, of why people might use the term new Jim Crow. When you think about the disparities, we're 100 to 1 from cracking cocaine and that the policing was ramped up not in, you know, rural areas where you find white poverty and people may be more likely to be using drugs, but in inner cities and in black neighborhoods um, of poverty was kind of a deliberate choice, right? And so then they're pushed into the system that then on the, on the back end, once they get out, not only the cost of being in prison, but the cost to all of us and to society for them once they're released. And often cases just for like 
possessing marijuana um, as like, and not even tons of it, as, as the offense that triggered a whole spiral that has all of these impacts on so many people. And so I think um, that's a nice transition to uh, one of your solutions uh, for thinking about this is marijuana policy. Um, and um, so I'm uh, interested to talk about that because I think this is really where we start thinking about how to cost benefit analysis of overall social costs to something. Um, spending all this money for marijuana users uh, to be held in prison while the case for marijuana as a, me as a medicine and, uh, and its health uh, benefits and questionable st status as a Schedule One drug is something that we should really be talking about. Um, so that's your segue. Take it away. Yeah, definitely. It's honestly a big issue, and if we're able to fix this issue with like marijuana or just how we look at drug offenses, we could definitely like alleviate this problem with overpopulation in prisons and just help out our communities in general. Um, so just beginning, people have been using drugs recreationally medicinally for thousands of years, and what makes them illegal or legal just depends on who's writing the codes, mm -hmm. generally. Um, so just that, the example of that, just going back to what we talked about earlier with the Nixon administration, um, he went over and he kind of wanted to target the black communities, the hippie communities, and he created the Drug Enforcement Agency in 1973, um, Controlled Substance Act in 1971, and that's when he actually scheduled the different drugs. And so when they, before this, there was just, the only thing that happened, so just talking about marijuana, there was a marijuana tax in 1937 that just placed a tax on sale of cannabis and had a hefty fine, like $2,000 and five years in prison if you didn't pay the tax, but just a tax on it. Um, then when the Nixon administration passed the Controlled Substance Act, um, classified drugs, the five schedules, and Schedule 1, the most dangerous, um, had marijuana, heroin, and LSD all grouped together in one little classification. And so just obviously he, Nixon used that to go after the black and hippie communities. And then going over during the Carter administration, it kind of went, Carter was like, hey, well, even before Carter, so 1971 that happened. 1972, Nixon put together a commission. It's like, hey, guys. Um, Republicans just come together. I want you guys to look at this policy on marijuana and see what you guys think about it. More towards the lines of like having them hopefully put something positive out saying, yeah, marijuana, these drugs, they're bad. We should make sure it's criminalized and stuff. So what happened was is they unanimously recommended decriminalizing the possession and distribution of marijuana for personal <laughs> use. And so obviously Nixon didn't like that, so he just kind of tried to hush that um, that report out, and then just kept on with his war on drugs. Then in Jimmy Carr's election, I think part of his platform was, hey, legalization of marijuana, we shouldn't be criminalizing these people. He won, but it was short-lived, didn't really get too much done, maybe like 11 states decriminalized it, but then the Reagan administration came. And um, we talked in one of our other sections, I don't know if we talked in this podcast about it yet, but Nancy Reagan had her big Just Say No anti-drug campaign, mm -hmm. and that in concert... Well, like that, and the media just getting big awareness, like, hey, drugs are what's really the problem for crime. It's just all the bad things facing American society. It's drugs. And really villainizing the communities that use drugs, the hippies or just the African-American community, 
especially. And then in 86, when Reagan passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, establishing the mandatory minimum sentences. Um, and we saw those today, and I just have the statistics on what those mandatory minimum sentences are. So for marijuana, any amount, the first offense, it's a misdemeanor. Um, and you, this, there's no mandatory minimum sentence for that one, but you could have up to a year incarceration and max fine of $1,000. Any amount, the second offense, misdemeanor, minimum mandatory minimum sentence of 15 days in prison um, and up to two years, 2500 Now, if any amount after that, it could be a felony, and you have a mandatory minimum of 90 days. For the sale of it, um, so just sale in general, so like, I'm not a legal expert, but I can assume you just have it and say, hey bud, I got this from this guy, I'll give you a gram or something, and then they pay you. Oh, that's considered a sale. So now you're a felon, and five years in prison, $250,000 max fine. And, yeah. So that, that just increases the prison population. It starts getting people in prison. Um, and that's across, well, not all 50 states today, but during that time period, across all 50 states. And that just filled the war on drugs. Well, one of the things that I think is uh, just, I mean, scandalous about the schedule of drugs is that even with known uh, medical uses for cannabis, um, the, the criterion for being in schedule one is that, um, is that it has no, one of the criteria is that it has no known medical benefits, which is just false, just false. Um, and it's still scheduled as a schedule one drug with, despite all of this academic evidence, despite all of this evidence from the, the uh, medicine community and physicians, um, it remains a schedule one drug. Um, and so I think the, the question then becomes, you know, why is that? Because um, it's clearly not particularly rational. And I think this gets at some of the factors that we've been talking about where the enforcement of it has been to, uh, you know, target certain communities. And it's maybe then not a surprise that they want to have access to those tools still. Uh, it seems like a, a policy that at different times, the marijuana policy in particular, I mean, I appreciate your history of it because, you know, taxed in the 30s, made a Schedule One kind of a highly illicit drug in the 70s, and then mostly target are often targeted in, in black communities to use as a war on drugs. It's like when you step back away from it a little bit and all the pieces come together, it's a really ugly picture, I think. Um, so are states doing, um, are states making changes? Did you look, did the group look at what different states are doing with respect to marijuana policy that might directly help the prison uh, issue? Yeah, I believe there's today nine states in D.C. have legalized marijuana. Thirty states have legalized medical marijuana. Um, so just on a state level, state enforcement, and that happened during the Obama administration. Obama kind of allowed these states to legalize. I mean, they, they started legalizing, I think, in the late 90s. They started legalizing medical marijuana. But just, just marijuana in general, that's helped out because states don't have to enforce that, the federal policy. And do you know, is there any work, I've seen a couple of uh, news articles on, uh, I believe it was California um, and maybe another state, but are looking to um, uh, vacate, I guess is the word for it, but to do away with prison sentences of people that are currently in prison for uh, possession yeah, I, I saw a news article on that. I didn't, I didn't put that in the report, but I did, I did see some news articles talking about that 
I mean, we made this legal now, but there's still people in prison, like, serving mm-hmm. these sentences. And it's crazy to me, I just know our group in general, that when we think about it, there's people in Colorado or D.C. or other places where they're able to buy and sell this drug, and they're able to do it legally, no prison sentences. And there's people in other states, like Texas, where they're serving mandatory minimum sentences, where they're serving jail time for something that people are making money on and getting taxed and providing a benefit to society in other states. <laughs> yeah, but when you put it like that, it seems ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the one one of the policies, and this has again been a frequent topic on this podcast, it's just the irrationality with re, with relationship to drug policies in this country. I mean, they're just not. It doesn't even follow their own rationalizations. I mean, the idea that that drugs need to be heavily and carefully regulated makes a lot of sense. And the idea that they should be taxed to discourage uses makes a lot of sense. But even amongst your own schedule, you have to, it should conform to best evidence practices from what we know from research. And we don't do that, which is really frustrating. Um, And because it affects all of the, this is what has led to overpopulation. This is what's led to devastate, uh, devastation of these communities. And it's just right there in black and white and, peer-reviewed empirical studies that that dispute the way in which these drugs are regulated. And it's it's really even if you want to even if you agree with the purpose of the regulation, which I think is an open question about the way in which we should regulate drugs and whether they should be create whether they should be regulated as as a criminal problem rather than maybe a health issue. Um, but even if you buy that, the fact that cannabis in particular is still a Schedule One drug is ridiculous. Yeah. Um... And so one thing about Schedule One drugs is that just by the nature of being a Schedule One drug, you, it's limited to where it can be researched. And it has mm-hmm. to be like approved and controlled by the DEA, other federal agencies. So for marijuana, the only place it's allowed to officially be researched is at a farm at the University of Mississippi where they're allowed to grow it and then research its effects. So at one university, at one certain place, very controlled and regulated how they're able to study it. Now, if they moved it from a Schedule 1 to Schedule 2, just doing that, it would open up the door for other universities to be able to start researching and figure out the effects. And then that research would hopefully maybe build political capital and just let people know about if there's any dangers in marijuana and if there's not, what are all the positive effects they can do, especially for medical research and how we can use that in our lives. Yeah, no, I mean, it seems a, like a, a pretty clear cut case that more research should be done on the potential uh <clears throat> medical benefits and potential medical harms, um, for sure. Um, and so it's, it's weird again, that it stays at schedule one where, um, there are some known medicinal benefits and it would allow us to have all these additional, you know, it would allow us to have additional resources to be able to do better research. Um, but that's not where we currently are. Another thing that your group talked about is uh, a focus on juvenile rehabilitation. So tell me about, um, tell me a little bit about this solution as well. So the whole purpose behind this solution is just to kind of get them while they're young. And uh, the logic behind it is it's just more of a utilitarian approach to things. Um, and this is because it addresses the causes and effects that lead to prolonged criminal behavior. So stop them before they become career criminals and like, have kids of their own, and then the cycle just continues and continues and continues. Um, also, it helps juveniles like re-enter into society where they can actually succeed. Um, a lot of the times, these kids 
they don't continue high school and they drop out and that leads them to revert to gang activity and more crime and again like continuing the cycle and then also um focusing on programs that like actually help with the rehabilitative aspect of things it allows funds to be spent on these programs that are cheaper than maintaining the overall prison costs mm -hmm. in society so that's kind of the whole logic behind um focusing on this solution what are the different types of tools or what, what do we have to help with juvenile rehabilitation that's a better choice than prison i mean are the things already in place um are they funded well? Did you did you look into any of that? Yeah, so like some things that a lot of people are focusing on is just like just anger management in general. Um, so a lot of like Indiana, for instance, they are really big on just focusing on how to calm yourself down. Um, just like one program that they have is called Cage Your Rage. That's just mm -hmm. one play on it. Um, additionally, like they have like the scared straight programs. But going back to the whole, like, tough on crime, tough on crime, tough on crime, like, scaring them, that actually doesn't really work so well. Mm -hmm. So that's why a lot of people are wanting to focus more on the, uh, like, breathe aspect of yeah, it. Yeah, positive not, strategies yeah. for coping with stressful situations exactly. or anxiety, meditation-type techniques, yeah. mindfulness strategies. Um, and is the, are there national priorities or national projects towards this or is this stuff that's mostly just being done at the state and local level or by nonprofits, or is there a big kind of overarching push towards this i think it's mostly a state and nonprofit thing not so much a national direction towards it even though we probably should be focusing on it nationally but i think it's definitely more of a state issue yeah this one i think is really important um I, uh, with another group, we did the school to prison pipeline um, as one of the pressing problems. And this, this juvenile rehabilitation thing is ignored or not done particularly well often, where instead of it being a rehabilitative thing, it's more of a detention thing that then just sets the children up for adult crime or adult prison. And so serious interventions at the juvenile level within the education system or within different types of support seems like a real uh, useful strategy because there is this, there's a whole set of literature on when we lose children at the school age level, at the primary school age level, it just becomes this kind of pipeline to steal the term right from the, right from the language of it to prison. Um, and schools often play large roles in this as well by either not giving them the resources they need um, or as a result of worried about standardized tests or um, um, oversight kind of push children out of the system. The, the, the worst troublemakers, the ones that need the most help, are often pushed out by administrators be, um, because of the ways in which the schools are measured and scored. I mean, all of these have really, you know, also just happen to often be in poor communities, which also happen to be the communities that are um, experiencing problems with drugs or experiencing problems with crime or happen to be the types of communities that are policed more heavily. And so it, again, becomes this really vicious um, self-defeating cycle. And so I like the focus of uh, a 
focusing on, focusing on investing in the children and juveniles before um, they enter the system. So what things have we missed that you learned as part of this project that you thought were particularly kind of jarring or particularly interesting or troublesome or hopeful? Um, this is a topic that's come up a number of times and I always leave it pretty depressed if I'm being honest. Um, it doesn't really, I don't see a lot of positive reform in this direction. Um, so um, anything that you think would be interesting to leave uh, listeners with? Prepare to be more sad. Oh, great. All right. More positivity. <laughs> uh, so there's there have been some uh, efforts to correct this, but they've been kind of few and far between. In the sentencing project, which deals with this issue and studies this issue, they say if uh, states and the federal government maintain their recent pace of decarceration, it will take 75 years until the year 2093 to cut the prisoner population by half. And so that's a very slow... Uh, decrease in my opinion especially when you consider that there is a thousand percent increase from 1970 till now and then you're only cutting that by half and so it doesn't look awesome but um hopefully a lot of these initiatives that we talked about today and other ones will be implemented in the future i don't want to add i think it's definitely like a bipartisan issue because whether you're coming from you know the more arguments of like the impact it's having on society and individuals or you're coming from just like uh, the cost aspect, I think either side can get on board with trying to have reform in this issue. Yeah. Um, just thinking about like a positive note, I mean, the conversations, <laughs> the conversations <laughs> are happening. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, across the country, people are talking about drugs and like how we look at that. I mean, and then for the opioid crisis and stuff, they're looking at, we have good Samaritan laws and we have people um, just looking at the way how we treat that, how we combat it. Should we just be criminalizing it so much that people die at their house because they're afraid to take people to the hospital or are we being more open and just um, how we treat them. I think it's called um, harm reduction policy. I think different European countries have been using that and trying that out and just looking at instead of criminalizing or focusing on just putting people in jail for using drugs, education programs or rehabilitation programs to prevent people from getting hurt by them or from just using them in the first place. I think that's the big positive takeaway is that the dialogue is changing from the draconian approach of the 70s, 80s, and 90s of lock them up and you know throw away the key to us being open and honest about it and what we can do to change. So that is a positive. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the, the policy stuff is certainly lagging, and then there's kind of a lot of strong law enforcement, uh, big law enforcement rhetoric right at this current moment in time, I think, as well. But the dialogue in general among the kind of acceptability of talking about this as a topic and talking about it a little bit more rationally, I think has really changed in the last 10 years. Absolutely. And um, so I think that is a kind of something that we're talking about within the uh, Oberton window with a little bit more rationality than we have in the past. And so I think that's, I think that's promising, um, which is a positive note that we will end on rather than going <laughs> back to any of these negative points. So um, thanks again for uh, having this conversation with me. I, uh, this is one that I mentioned before comes up in some form regularly and I'm always happy to have it because it's something that we need our policymakers to get as, as the citizenry is changing their uh, viewpoints and as science is changing the landscape of this. It's something that policymakers really need to address because it affects so many lives. Um, so hopefully 
uh, this can help add to that conversation. Thank you all so much.